Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Alan Hawkshaw and Brian Bennett and Name of the Game from KPM album. Many of you will not necessarily be familiar with KPM, but I think you'll be familiar with the music itself. Alan, amongst many other musicians and, and songwriters, were responsible for a whole range of um, library records including the KPM label, which was one of the sort of front runners in, in that sphere, especially in that sort of golden period in the 70s, as well as um, Alan featuring on many other records in his own right as a, as a songwriter and uh, musician. So um, KPM, there is a live show, the KPM All-Stars, coming up on the 6th of October. Alan, you've got an album with Brian Bennett that we're going to talk about a bit later. But any, anyway, that's quite a bit of an intro, so welcome, Alan. Uh huh. Good evening. Can you just tell me for for those that don't know the the sort of concept behind library music and and kind of KPM's role and how how you fit in? Uh well, and we could talk all night on defining library music. <laughs> I'm sure. I, I I mean back going back, library music's been around for uh, quite a few years. Um, I think it all really started to take a role back in the late forties, fifties, and so on when the publishing companies realised they could find a home for uh, what we would call stroke music. In other words, uh, music that could be picked up off the shelf and applied to jingles and films and mm. movies and all kinds of stuff. And and there was there was money to be made as, as far as copyright is concerned. That. So, in, in a sense, live music in, in those days was the second cousin, if you like. It was to a commission score. A commission score would be the way to go, but if a, if any small film company or big film companies for that matter were trying to conserve some some budget costs, mm. they could if they could find the right piece of music it would be cheaper, as it were. So it was it, it was a it was a it was a cheaper option to doing a score and that and, and that's the way it was for many years. <clears throat> I mean what's emerged since then, I mean, we're talking about music that was written on an ephemeral basis. It was it was really meant to be for the for the for the period in which it was written. A lot of that music was. In my case, uh, you know, back in the sixties, I was hmm. I was into funky music, rock music, and that's what uh, Robin Phillips at KPM asked me to do first of all. So I I did I did this I did this uh, couple of albums for him. Uh, in that style, and never realising, of course, that it, uh, in a sense, is more popular today than it was then, which is a real paradox. And then, and now it's a different animal. Uh, the library music has become a different animal because it was created mainly by uh, composers and musicians that literally had to go in there and record everything in one go, live, as it were. It's got a characteristic to it that uh, is attractive to to the producers and the collectors and the composers that were 
that were that have been active in the last uh, 20, 25, 30 years, realizing this is a great source of inspiration in this music. And it's nice to for it to be recognized as kind of a cultural difference than, than, than becoming the alternative to a commission score. In other words, it's a standalone collection of pieces of music right across the board from small to large orchestras, from different types, from funk to classical. And, um, and now it stands up on its own. And, and, uh, and of course, the onset of sampling is a typical example of how it's become very effective and people have mm. have got off on certain sections of it and they've cut out portions of the library and apply new mm. compositions to it or new new breakbeats to it and uh, and create a whole new productions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the best way I can, just, I can define it. Yeah, it, it does really feel like the time for library music has has come or is it's more popular now than ever because not only you've got sampling i think there's many many people who'd basically uh say that you are well you know a pivotal figure in the, the hip-hop industry um and and that as well as kind of the rise of spotify and streaming and instrumentals and and background music and so then you put the two together it's it, it very much feels like um library music is 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 from being a sort of underground sort of... Well, I mean, the history of, of hip-hop, I mean, it's, uh, funnily enough, didn't come from library, is uh, the Sugar mm. Hill Mob, uh, mm. a gang, as you know, uh, a rapper's delight, uh, mm. happened to siphon off a piece of one of my disco uh, 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 albums, Love Deluxe, it comes out sound again, <clears throat> and that was uh, one of the mm. one of the main riffs in it, that, that based, which wasn't library. Music, but it, but hip hop what has used library obviously it's used a lot of library riffs over the years yeah it's quite right. In terms of getting into library music, you you're known as going back into the sort of early sixties um, as part of one of the checkmates. You, then you kind of went into session work and these countless sessions that you featured on the sixties, you know such as the Hollies, uh, the Trevelos, uh, Marmalade, etc. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's all a big series, a long series of happy accidents in a way. Um, you know, one stumbles from one um, part of the industry to the other is uh, when I look back at it, the decision to move from one area to another all happened on a whim in, this, in a sense. I mean, the whole, the whole point of being in the library company in the first place was just by pure chance that I was introduced to uh, KPM to an old mate of mine called Guy Fletcher, who happened to be in a group uh, that was on a, a national newspaper competition for music, music called News of the World, as it was then, and he happened to be on the bill that night. And that's how I met Guy, and we formed an instant friendship, and he had already got a deal with KPM as a songwriter, but he took me in there, not to go into the library of music, but to meet, um, I, you know, I wanted to write songs. So he introduced me to the uh, Phillips family, of which Robin Phillips was one of them, and he was. Uh, and that's how I came to write library music. And you, you also in in that kind of mid sixties period also were involved in writing some more popular tracks. I mean, there's some real cult classics, um, such as Norman Stanley, James St Clair, on you know which the Tremolos featured on that. I understand that you co-wrote. Oh, uh, was you Patterson? I think did that with me. Yeah, that was. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I, again, I, I mean, commercially, I worked with a lot of these people, tremolos, love affair, uh, a whole, uh, as a session musician for 12 years anyway, mm. I worked with just about everybody in, in, in town, and that's not a brag, it's just the way it was. And we, we never knew who we were going to be working with on a day-to-day basis, but we did work about with just about everybody. I mean, there were five keyboard players around at that time who, who, who commandeered, as it were, the, the bulk of the work, which I was one. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did all that. But on top of all that session work, I'm also writing lively music mm. in my spare time. Then I'm getting TV series coming in, and I'm doing arrangements for people mm. as well. So it became a kind of a, a real madhouse of a period mm. over that year, over those years. Uh, in fact, I look back at my old diaries now, and uh, and apart from that, you've got a, a private life to run as well, a family life, as it were, mm. as I got married in the 60s, late 60s, and to finish up, you know, with two kids, and ju- you, you finish up juggling all these things all the time, trying to keep them all these balls in the air, you know. But uh, but yeah, yeah, if you're young enough, you can do it, and uh, I guess, well, we did it, you know, we did it, and... Uh, and you're listening to some of the, as it were, the, the fruits of that period, uh, which would have been the library, which seems to, uh, again, which seems to have emerged and, and, uh, and sustained itself over that period, which is great. Stop and stare at Norman Stanley James. 
and of course, a, a key a key track from from that period in terms of library music, which is and again links in what we were talking about before in terms of hip hop music, is uh, the Mohawks and the Champ, which uh, you know you wrote and recorded, which again is one of the most sampled tracks in the history of music. Well, the Champ is uh, again it's uh, if. I like to call it the group that never was because it, uh, it was one. It was a, another session to me that day, and I happened to uh, mention to the Palmer brothers that uh, cause they wanted to get an album out quick. I said, "Well, you're in luck because I've just done a library album for KPM that has this very the same musicians as it happens as on the Champ on that particular day, so you can." With a bit of luck, you might be able to negotiate a deal and you'll have an album by the end of the week. Hmm. And that's what they did. They, they called Robin and they think, uh, Robin um, assigned out uh, Beat Me Till I'm Blue, uh, Senior Thump, uh, Lucky Mountain Runabout, runabout uh, a couple of tracks that we'd already cut. So that's why they're on that particular album. Um, yeah, they, I mean, that's basically the story of the Mohawks, which incidentally is, uh, I think they're celebrating 50 years this year of the Mohawks. They're actually doing some, uh, I heard there was a documentary coming out on I haven't seen it yet.
There's a track that you did with Keith Mansfield that is uh, very atmospheric and almost Hitchcock-esque that I want to ask you about, and that's uh, She. She was, uh, well, yeah, I mean, she, she was one of those... Uh, it's a little bit different than your normal live music. Mm. Well, it, it, I mean, it had to be, you know, it was played live with big orchestra, and I had this, what we call a roasting piano part in it, meaning that it was difficult to a degree to play live, uh, you know, with the top people playing with you. Mm. you got to get it right, you know, and, uh, and it was a, it was quite, it was a great session. It was a, a very atmospheric. And, um, it happens to be one of my favorite library tracks, as it happens. But what I like about the track, in particular, is, is Cliff Hardy's uh, trombone solo in the middle. Cliff Hardy uh, has got this beautiful, mm. sweet sound on, on the trombone and, and the, and the melody. And that was great fun to do. And on the same session, we did commercial release of a song called Puppet on the String. Which had been a big, a big uh, Eurovision song for Sandy Shaw at that period, and I knew the writers, uh, Bill Martin and Phil Coulter. Oh yeah, because I'd been on the original demo, but I did it as a piano piece, a frantic Peter Nero type piece uh, with orchestra as well, and that was also roast in itself. Ronnie Burrell on drums. So yeah, I mean she yeah happens to be one of my mm. one of my favourite uh, library texts of all time, written with Keith.
track that seems to have had increased prominence in the last 10 or 15 years is uh, In the Heat of the Morning, uh, which uh, you, you did with uh, David Bowie on uh, a, a John Peel Top Gear show. How did you get involved with kind of those sessions? Were you just kind of... Well, I bo- mean, we, 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 it was Tony Visconti, uh, but um, we wanted extra players on it. But I think it was Arthur Greenslade was the musical director. And he pulled in myself... I remember who was on drums, but John, John McLaughlin was on guitar, believe it or not. Oh, gosh. And, uh, I mean, uh, you know, and that, I mean, look what happened to him. Mm. Prior to that, oddly enough, I'd done a thing with Bowie that uh, Ridley Scott produced. Um, we did a jingle for Lion's Ice Cream called Love, L-U-V Ice Cream, Love Ice Cream. Mm. And Bowie did the, it was a song I wrote with, with Ray Cameron. Uh, Ray Cameron was my partner at that time, who happens to be, by the way, the father of Michael McIntyre. Oh, yeah. And, um, and we've written th- this thing called Love for a group called Mint. And Ridley put it together with Bowie miming to it, and that came out of this jingle. For, for So that was the first thing, uh, uh, thing I did with Bowie. But uh, then we did the album Bowie at the Beep. Mm. And uh, In the Heat of the Morning was a, an original song written by David Bowie, in which uh, <clears throat> I seem to remember, having listened to it, there's a couple of different versions of that song out. The, the very original one had a tremendously long fade at the end, in which they, I can't remember the part, but they, they must have said to me, just, just add a little few organ things to it. And they kept the light on. They must have been going for a minute. This long, it's the longest fair I've ever known. Hmm. Uh, with me just flying around on the organ. So there's a version of it out there somewhere with, with that. And then the, there's another version with a shorter fade in it. Hmm. But yeah, that, that was the boy, the, the two boy things I did. Gaze, senorita sway, dance with me before they frozen 
Obviously, in this period, you worked a lot with Brian Bennett, who's known for for, for being drummer in the Shadows, but obviously a, a very renowned writer in his his own regard. Was it Brian that kind of linked you into getting involved with the Shadows in in that kind of late sixties, early seventies period? Yes, it was. Uh, uh, Brian, yeah, Brian, uh, Brian and I met very long before the Shadows. Well, not that long before, but we met in. Uh... Uh, he was doing a summer season, so was I, the same result. And we just happened to meet through a mutual friend and we, we were jamming. We just went, we jammed some jazz one afternoon and got on it tremendously well and we liked our playing. So that's how we met. And then at the end of that year, I think it was down in 61 or 62, he got the offer to play Takeover from Tony Meehan in the shadows and that was the connection therefore after that we, we, we would hook up here and there so I did some stuff for Cliff and then that led to Olivia Newton-John and then that led to working with Cliff uh, working on tour with Cliff and the, and the shadows eventually becoming a member of the shadows for a couple of years when Bruce decided to uh, call it a day for a while so for some reason the bizarre as it may sound I became the fourth shadow on keyboards, which didn't make a lot of sense, but uh, but it was two. It was two years. We had some fun. We did a lot of touring, but that wasn't the top. Uh, that wasn't my kind of um, you know no. claim to fame. I mean, I mean, the shadows. It was just another job for me. I was I was more interested in in, in uh, doing the TV work and all the rest of the stuff I was doing. Well, that was just, it didn't involve a day-to-day thing with the Shadows. It was uh, it was more or less the odd tour and the odd club we would do up north or, uh, or working with uh, Cliff and, and Olivia on tour in the Far East and, and Europe. So it wasn't like, um, you know, 52 weeks a year of it. I think something you were on in that period, which was Shadows Linked, was Marvin Welch and Farrow. And these tracks we've got your sort of organ on that are very atmospheric. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, John Farrow, because I worked with a lot, he was Olivia's producer. We had a few things I did with them, the, the way it's... Uh, the one that I quite liked doing on that one was one that we... He asked me to do a song called uh, I Honestly Love You. Ah, uh, yeah. Which uh, Olivia recorded. We, we did it as an album track, so we didn't have... We had no rhythm on it. It was a little classical sound to do it. And that became a massive hit that they pulled out as a single for it and became a massive hit. In fact, it won the, uh, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences uh, Best Arrangement for that particular year. But that, was, again, was an accident. It wasn't meant to be a single. So, And and, yeah, and back to your point about Marvin Wilson mm. Fire, 
Yeah, I just try, I, I, as a player, I would have been booked as a session player one day. And that's how I came about. Going back to your work with KPM, it's interesting because there's a, there's a track called Towards Tomorrow, which I think was from about 1974. Prior to the sort of sampling, which I think it, it got very popular, very particular hip-hop artist, it got featured a few years later on a, a film tr- soundtrack, Teenage Twins. And w- was that 
was that quite common in terms of pieces of your music or KPM music would just get picked up and then over the next few years it suddenly appear on a film? Well, I mean, that, 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 that's what lab music is for. I mean, it's issued mm. for that reason, to, to be used uh, on any film. I mean, the, the danger with library, if you're, if you're the producer of a, or director, is you may find a great piece that, that works, as in that case, see people probably liked it, but you, it could turn up on any any form. I mean, a classic example of that would be Channel 4 News, Best Endeavours, which was a library piece. Mm. And that's turned up, uh, that was in Pale Rider for uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, you know, uh, the, the movie. So you get it in two different prominent um, uh, features, as it were. But it's still on. I mean, it's, and that was back in, gosh, that was 1982. And it's still on. It's actually still on today. But going back to Towards Tomorrow, that's got a real funky feel. Is that Was that something which was... And obviously that's a theme amongst much of the your most popular work, especially amongst the hip-hop community. Did that come naturally to you in terms of that sort of more funk, funk style? I, you know, it's difficult to, um, to really get... I mean, yes, it, it would have come easy to me. I was more of a percussive type of hammer player in those days, and... I didn't consciously copy anybody else. I, the only organist that I was influenced by would have been, I don't know, well, I took out Richard Cruzon's would have been one that I would have been influenced by. And he never played, he didn't play anything like I did. His was pure jazz. Uh, Jimmy Smith, of course, uh, another one. Uh, again, that was all cool jazz. It was swinging jazz, whereas mine was just out and out energetic funk, you know. I, I just went into, and I took a group of guys in there, I would sketch out parts and get some good players with me and would um, hope that we would come up with something with, you know, with a good energetic sound to it and a memorable sound to it. And I think that's what happened. But in that case, I think it was from an album called Sounds of the Times. So that speaks for itself. It was supposed to be sounds of that time, of that period. But they've let down, yeah.
And then moving on to another very well-renowned piece of, of your music, and that's uh, Strange Lands, and that, that seems to have got more of a sort of spacey synth feel. Uh, I love the uh, I, I love things with atmosphere in them. Mm. Um, Strange Lands, that, that was from an album called The Road Forward, I, I, I And I still do like atmospheric sounds, though. You know, where you can get off and play something and immediately be taken in the, uh, but by the sound that you hear in a sustained way. And that kind of opens up all kinds of possibilities. And, uh, and that one was, uh, I, I, I love those things to do with space, you know, the cosmos and all that kind of stuff. And I love the space odyssey and all, and all the uh, atmosphere you would, you would expect to hear from going into the depths of, the universe. Uh, I, I loved all that, I, and I still do. Uh, so that, that's how that would have come about. Don't forget, synthesizers were in a very early stage at that point. Most of the stuff uh, I was doing, I was re- I, I'd had a, I'd had a profit four or two, mm. uh, and all behind a Juno 60 synthesizer, maybe one other, and that would be it. So from all that those instruments, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to eat every last sound you could figure out. And now you've got the luxury of um, atmospheres and these, these different sound libraries uh, where you've got a lot of the work's already been done. And it's good. It's, I mean, it's really inspiring. But it's 40 years later, 50 years later. And then those days, we, we really had to make do with what we had. And maybe there was something good about it, plus the fact it was uh, analog. In those days, everything was analog, basically. So we we really are making... In fact, a good example of how effective it was would be a movie, a little uh, theatrical movie I did called uh, The Silent Witness. That won one of the best awards, music awards. That was uh, Ivan Avello Award, the best score. But that was done... Again, on these very limited synthesizers, mm. but what came out of it was the the content of it. So nowadays, I think we can almost get too much stuff to choose from.
And perhaps that's that's what attracts um, hip hop musicians in the the sounds that you made on the re- those records were unique because of the way that you crafted them with the the synths and and the instruments. Well, I think that they, I think people like Jay, I mean, I mean, you know, really know this, but Jay Z did um, a piece of music I wrote for Hank Marvin mm. called New Earth. So Jay Z sampled and created a whole new piece called Pray with him and the liver and uh, Beyonce mm. singing it, and that was on his American Gangster album, number one track on that. And uh, and that was again was another bonus. That wasn't a library track, full enough, but it was very. It was, it sounded like that's the kind of track I would have done as a library piece. Mm. But uh, Hank Marvin asked me to write him a piece anyway for for his guitar syndicate album. That's what it was. That's how that came about.
Going back to the the Road Forward album, there's another track that's again that's been sampled frequently, and that's Sheer Elegance. That's a bit sort of lighter in tone than Strange Lands. How how much of a brief did you have in terms of the songs that you had to create for twelve tracks, etc.? The early briefs, I became more disciplined as time went by with Robin Phillips' uh, brief that he would give us. The nature of library would be to be given a brief on, you know, it could be wildlife, it could be drama, it could be corporate, whatever it was. I became more disciplined as time went by and stuck, as it were, stuck to the brief. <laughs> I was guilty of not sticking to the brief in many cases in the early days because I, you know, in the process of writing something that started ostensibly to the brief and I would like what I hear that had nothing to do with the brief. Mm. But I still like what I heard, and that was more important to me than sticking to the brief. Because if I liked it, I assumed that other people would like it too. And and, and people would like to use it. And, and that proved right for quite a while. Uh, and, but as I said, as time went by, I became more disciplined, and uh, and I gave I gave Robbie what he wanted. The early days, uh, he, he was um, he took a bit of a risk on me, because I was a rock and roller. And uh, he wanted to mm. modernise, if you like, the, the library. He didn't 
inherited. Um, he wanted to make him, he wanted to, uh, you know, he, he went out there and, and met the directors and they said, you know, we want more of this, we want more of that. Funky stuff, as it were, we, we've got enough orchestral things that we don't need any more orchestral stuff and so on. That would have been the gist of the conversation. So he would ask us to do something of that particular time, which we did. And there's the mystery. And it's more popular now than it was then, and that's the weird thing.
And when did your connection to the, the, the KPM label end? Was it by the end of the 70s? Well, don't forget, Robin uh, moved on from KPM. Oh, okay. And KPM became, as, as most of these companies are, they get bought out by Sony and people, whatever. Mm. And they changed the bosses and um, Robin uh, and the Phillips family were, were more or less... The, the KPM was the Phillips family, to start if you look at the history of it. Mm. They, they created all that uh, that particular early period, 50s and 60s, into the 70s, late 70s, then it gets bought out by uh, EMI, and then they take over different boss. Robin leaves. He forms another company called Bruton Music. We went along with him. His key writers went along with him for Bruton Music. Mm. And then Bruton Music, eventually that's taken over, and he forms Music House. Mm. And we, 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 we kind of went along with him for that, too. So uh, that's that's how that's how basically the, the way it works. Uh, it becomes a business. It's a business. There's a, of course, there's a, a loyalty involved. We, we were loyal to Robin to a degree, but there was a point where I was approached by some of the key boys, Alan Parker, uh, Harry Morgan, a few others, to form another company mm. called Themes International. And I was thinking ahead at the time. I thought, well, yes, this would be good for. You know, for my retirement, I think we're looking at 40, 50 years, um, that would be a good idea. The only problem is that, and, and we started to record some stuff, but, the, <clears throat> but one of the stipulations that, that was offered was that I would be exclusive to that company. And that, look, I owe Robin Phillips, and I wouldn't want to do that. So I said, that particular condition of being exclusive to themes was not working except this is after I've already put it a couple of albums mm. and they said well in that case you know they started one or the other so I said okay so that was it that was the end of my directorship as it were with themes and um, I continued writing for Robin at Music House until that Eventually got bored out as well while we retired. Mm. And then, am I right that you came increasingly involved in TV soundtracks and, and that sort of work by the 80s? That's what I did, really, throughout the 80s and 90s. Until I, frankly, I got fed up with doing TV. It became a little bit about, um, I don't know, painting and decorating, if you like. I don't want to be doing background music just for TV. I'd rather do stuff I like doing. That was only through, through, you know, years of having to find deadlines with Arthur C. Clarke and Love Hurts and all kinds of stuff was going on. You were all watching deadlines. Bringing us back near to the present, it has become Full Circle, which is the, the title of your your new album with uh, Brian Bennett. It's really got that um, iconic KPM feel to it. I've chosen a track, Reignited, which really has got that that distinctive organ sound of yours? Yeah, we enjoy doing it. It's, uh, uh, in fact, I haven't done a live album for ages. Uh, and that particular one, well, well we did it. It's a, it's a slightly different album for live in that it wasn't really following a brief. It's more of an eclectic collection of uh, pieces that uh, mm. that will, will work as a commercial release as much as a, as a live album. 
So each piece has got to really stand up on its own uh, rather than follow any particular brief. But uh, no, I mean, Brown and I like playing together and, and, uh, and I like arranging for bands. You know, I like, I like having some real players, good players. And we had a tremendous, uh, tremendous front line there with us on some of the tracks, not all of them, but we, that was to me was great fun to do. You've got um, quite a lineup coming for the, the KPM All Star Show on the uh, 6th of October. Uh, yep, that's going to be a live, live concert. I'm, um, I'm trying to get my fingers back in the shape for that. Yeah. And I haven't played anything live for quite a while. But, uh, what, well, you know, this, that's the great thing about, about it too. I, I like the slight element of risk here. It's a good thing about doing stuff live. Because you're always on a, you know, you're taking a little bit of a risk. Um, but I like that. There's an excitement which you don't get when you're working in studios and working doing for TV and stuff. It's too comfortable. This way, uh, it, the people get what they see and, and that's it. And that's what I like about it. So I'm quite excited about that, that night. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. Alan, it's uh, absolutely great to talk to you. One of the reasons I'm doing a podcast is because things kind of took off when I did some research into artists and musicians related to my hometown of Leeds. And it's great to, to speak to someone who is originally from, from Leeds as well. So thank you. Leeds is a great town. I, I love Leeds. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, I, uh, um, I'm, I'm up there because my foundation is at Leeds College of Music. Um, you know, we help young students to get uh, degrees and scholarships. I've done for 15 years now. Brilliant. And, um, and, it's, and I, love, I love going up there. It uh, was my hometown and is my hometown. I was really. So, uh, yeah, that's great. I didn't realise you were from Leeds. Brilliant. That's, that's lovely. Thank you so much, um, Alan. It's a real pleasure. And I, I wish you all the best with uh, your new album with Brian. And, uh, you know, what, what looks to be, a, you know, a fantastic uh, a live show. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Alan. Yes. All right, take care. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done, news, plus even access to my exclusive interview archive. All your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests. To support me, just go to patreon.com forward slash strangebrewpod or go to the strangebrew.co.uk forward slash about. Thanks very much and any reviews on your podcasting services are greatly appreciated. Thank you.